Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. It's a great pleasure to welcome today to the Beeson Podcast, Dr. Ajit Fernando. Uh, He's from Sri Lanka, uh, where he has served as the National Director of Youth for Christ since 1976. He's also the chairman of the Academic Affairs Committee at Colombo Theological Seminary in Colombo, which is the capital city of Sri Lanka. Uh, Ajit Fernando is one of the great uh, world Christian statesmen, I think, uh, living in the context of Sri Lanka, interacting with persons of very different faiths. Uh, He's maintained a consistent Christian witness and given us an approach uh, to how to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with persons of various world religious traditions. He's lived this out with great faithfulness in his own country, as well as having a ministry uh, here in North America and indeed all around the world. Uh, he's with us here at Beeson Divinity School to lead in our world Christianity emphasis uh, this semester, and it's a great pleasure to have you with us, Ajit. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Timothy. It's nice to be here. Uh, I wonder if we could start by asking you just to say a little bit about how you became a Christian and your background in Sri Lanka. Um, Actually, my mother is a convert from Buddhism, and her mother actually is the first one to really come to Christ. Um, And she had gone through a lot of misfortune in her life. She was an orphan, and her husband died after 10 years of marriage. And according to Buddhism, she was suffering for her karma, for what she had done in her past life. And in a hopeless condition, uh, she she had gone to a primary school, and uh, which was a Christian school, and uh, something told her, why don't you explore this Christianity that you were exposed to? And uh, she realized that uh, Christ had died for her karma. She didn't have to pay for it. And that resulted in her coming to Christ. And, and she has been the matriarch, as it were, the spiritual matriarch of a whole clan of people who have come to Christ. So your whole family became Christian through yes. the witness of your mother, primarily. Grandmother. Your grandmother, yes. yeah. yeah, Marvelous. And um, your own formation as a Christian was in uh, the Methodist Church yes. in Sri Lanka. And later you came to America and studied at Asbury Theological Seminary and then Fuller Theological Seminary. Say a little bit about how you uh, got from Sri Lanka to America and yet that personal, spiritual, and theological formation. Well, almost, uh, I gave my life to Christ when I was about 14. And um, uh, almost immediately I felt a call to preach. So uh, I started writing sermons. I was a very shy person. And I think that helped uh, me to get into writing, because even though I was afraid to talk, I could write. And uh, so I began to write sermons. I had a friend who was living out of town and not close to a church. So when I was about 17 years old, I was sending him a sermon every week. Mm. <laughs> and then, of course, the desire to preach got so heavy that I used to go to the beach, which was close to my home, sit on a rock and preach. Um, later on, people realized that I had a gift and they used to ask me to speak. Uh, but um, I ended up in the States uh, mainly through the witness of uh, of Dr. Sam Kamalason. Um I don't know whether you know this, but he's 
there's a picture or a, I don't know what it is called of Festo Kivangere uh, in in the in Beeson and he's standing next to him in ah, that, in yeah, that yeah. picture in our global center I think that's right yeah uh-huh. yes Sam Kamalesan was a great preacher and he used to come to Sri Lanka and he would stay in my parents home and when uh, he became a hero to me so i wanted to go to the seminary where he studied and um, my father was a active layman and he would uh, he would organize pastors conferences uh, for world vision mm-hmm. and paul reese was the uh, main speaker at some of those and my dad told paul reese about my desire to go to seminary and he was a member of the board of Asbury Seminary. So that's how I ended up at Asbury. What about that? And uh, Sri Lanka is a country that has known a lot of civil strife, a lot of a civil war, actually, between the Tamil and the Sinhalese. You've been involved in Youth for Christ ministry there now for many decades. Can you say a little bit about that conflict, uh, the nature of it, and how that's impacted your Christian work in that country? Yeah, we, um, we have... Um, the, the the war has been going on for about 28 years it's just come to an end and there is uh, well at least for the moment there is no war it's between um, the the government and a group of rebels who wanted the north and east to separate from the country and uh, so uh, because because that's the they they are predominantly tamil speaking people whereas the gov- the majority of the people are singhalese so they 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 asked for the separate state so that's that has been what the war has gone has been about um our ministry was of course shaped a lot by that um in the war zones for example very interestingly um, uh, wherever there was war and we had a ministry that ministry thrived mm-hmm. during the war mm-hmm. because the young people had something they could go to everything was closed and they had something they could go to and um and and youth for christ was always open so since the war has ceased it's not as easy to attract young people <laughs> um so it it's very interesting you know many many people would say leave the dangerous places and come but sometimes the most dangerous places are the most receptive places to mm-hmm. the gospel mm-hmm. so have when our people stayed on they were able to do a lot of work uh, of ministry in, in in that in that sense, you know, Martin Luther gave us a list of the marks of the church, and of course, we think of the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments; uh, those are crucial. But he also lists in the marks of the church suffering, and this has been a note in your own writing, in your own preaching and ministry that uh, it's often in the crucible of suffering, sometimes persecution, harassment that uh, the gospel takes root in new and surprising ways. That's been true in Sri Lanka and for your ministry there, hasn't it? Yes, very much so. Um, we have uh, uh, the, the church, uh, till about 30 years ago, was primarily in a few cities of the country. And our country is basically a rural nation. So um, there were about 30,000 city uh, villages in the country. Almost all of that had no gospel. Uh, witness and people went in and uh, to share the gospel and usually it takes about 10 15 years before the gospel takes root and during those 10 years they are persecuted they are assaulted 
churches are burnt or destroyed. Uh, and those who stuck to it, who stayed on, uh, bearing a lot of pain, those churches have taken root now. Because after about 10 years, people realize that, you know, these people are not as bad as we thought they were. All the stories we heard about them don't seem to be true. And then they accept them as part of the community. But usually it takes 10 to 15 years before that happens. And a lot of people give up before that. So those who are willing to take on that price, they will see lasting fruit. Now, you have lived at the interface of Christianity and religions of the East, Buddhism, Hinduism, perhaps others. Um, it seems to me that this is really one of the crucial issues that uh, Christianity is facing today. The claim, which many people regard as imperious, as arrogant, as intolerant, that personal faith in Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, is uh, the only way of salvation for everybody everywhere. Can we still make that kind of claim in the sort of pluralistic world we're living in today? I, I believe we should, uh, but I think some of our attitudes and uh, approaches to Christianity are making it difficult to make that claim. Uh, the, the claim that we have about Christ being the way for everyone is based on the fact that Jesus is God himself. Uh, it's based on an objective reality that we have come to accept as the truth. But as the church gets less and less interested in objective reality and more and more on experience and on subjective features, that is going to make it difficult to hold on to this religion. I believe one of the great uh, contributions of postmodernism to Christianity has been to remind us that Christianity is a religion that is very experiential. And a, a vital part of the gospel is experiential. However, if that takes away uh, the, the objective realities of Christianity, then people are going to find it difficult to hold on to this. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that we have to refocus on the objective truth of Christianity, on Jesus being God, and because he's God and creator of the universe, his message should be for everyone. Mm. I think we should refocus on that while emphasizing that Christianity is an experiential religion. How do you answer, though, those who say that this is a very intolerant claim? It doesn't take seriously the experience of other people of faith, and therefore it's demeaning, it's a part of in a kind of Western imperialistic, maybe even colonial uh, kind of mentality that no longer is relevant in the 21st century. This isn't only, of course, coming from people of other faiths who say this. It's coming from within the Christian faith itself. What's your response to that line of thought? Uh, I, I think the world has always found it difficult to put servanthood and lordship together. When Jesus was on earth, uh, when he came as a servant, they said he can't be the lord of creation. What's happening today is the exact opposite. When we come as and proclaiming Christ as the lord, they say, oh, y'all are arrogant, you can't be servants. I think the church has to work hard to demonstrate that the two can be held at the same time. I think one of the greatest challenges of the church in a pluralistic age is to be servants. Mm -hmm. uh, the people must see us as those who are genuinely con convinced, uh, concerned for the needs of people. Mm 
and and serving people right where they are. So radical servanthood is one of the great responses to the charge of arrogance. Also, I think respect for people. We, We believe that Christ is unique. But we also believe that people are, indivi- are, are, res- are have to be respected. Uh, the willing to accept all that is good in them. You know, there was a time when we thought these people are all evil, these cultures are evil. But there's a lot that is good in these cultures. And we don't have to be afraid of syncretism when we accept all that is good in somebody. Because Jesus Christ is so supreme, so unique. Uh, he is a class by himself. So we don't have to be afraid to affirm what is good in others and think that that is going to um, dilute our belief in the uniqueness of Christ. Does this come from the theological belief that all persons are made in the image of God, therefore they bear in some ways accountability to God, but also a likeness, a spiritual hunger, you know, what Tolstoy called this God-shaped blank that is in everyone, uh, does this is this relate to the fact that we have a common creator? I strongly believe so. I think the Christian doctrine of uh, general revelation uh, leaves room for people without the gospel to find truth, to find uh, a lot of good things and to develop good things, to develop um, art and culture and all of that. Um, but while we say that, we also say that uh, because people are fallen, uh, nothing, none of those achievements have prevented, ha- have uh, have sort of been able to avoid the taint and pollution of sin. Right. So we, while we affirm, we also uh, affirm that people are sinful, and that the only answer for their sin is the gospel of Christ. Let me ask you to comment on two uh, great Christian leaders from your part of the world. One was D.T. Niles, who is from Sri Lanka. I once met his son when I was a student in Boston. His son was at Boston University, and we had a nice fellowship together. I never met D.T. Niles, but he was a great leader, particularly in the World Council of Churches in the early days of that movement. And the other person is E. Stanley Jones, whom you will surely have uh, come across his writings and his influence. Uh, Say a little bit about each of these persons and how you would evaluate their legacy today. Yes, actually, it's very interesting that you should ask that. Uh, D.T. Niles was a very close personal friend of my father's. And um, we are in Methodism, we don't have bishops, we have presidents. And when D.T. Niles was president, my father was vice president of the church. Uh, Vice president is always a layperson. So we, we knew him well, uh, and uh, he was one of the most brilliant minds, I think. He was a f- it was almost a flamboyant mind he had. He, when, when he speaks, there would be so much, you know, insight and depth. Um, so, and he, he, at his heart, he had an evangelical belief. But I think, um, um, and he, he would testify to a time of personal conversion, even though he came from a Christian background, uh, through a Salvation Army hmm. ministry. Uh, however, his involvement with the World Council made him open to some some things which others took and went very far. He would uh, he talked, for example, of the givenness of Christ, um, the presence of Christ in places before you go there, hmm. yeah. which which I would accept that you know God is at work everywhere, 
But others took it and said that God was at work salvifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that people were saved without us going, they were saved. Now he wouldn't say that, but his people who followed him went in that direction. Yeah. So I think that's, uh, that was very unfortunate. Mm-hmm. And I think D.T. Niles uh, was a great mind, but I think there were some areas where towards the end of his life, uh, he was moving in a direction that, that proved to be a little dangerous. Mm-hmm. What about E. Stanley Jones? Uh, Stanley Jones, of course, is very special to me because my father came to faith in Christ at a universal university mission uh, conducted by Stanley Jones. Wow. And um, Stanley Jones was, um, I mean, he was way ahead of his time. Um, and he was a person who was able to see goodness in other people without compromising the absolute uniqueness of Christ. And that, in his time, was a little difficult for people to understand. To many of us, he has been a model. Mm -hmm. A model of trying to uh, present the gospel in a way that is credible to the peoples of of our nations. So Stanley Jones was a pioneer in in, uh, presenting Christ as unique in a way that didn't downplay the value of the culture of the people. Uh, we, we think of him as truly Indian and truly Christian. Mm. So he was in many ways a, a pioneer that many of us have used him as a mentor in our trying to um, formulate the gospel in ways that our people understand. Ajit, a few years ago, you wrote an article for Christianity Today. Perhaps you remember it. I think it was called Getting Back on Course. It was about uh, the tension that sometimes expressed between Christianity as social ministry and evangelism. As I recall, you were arguing that we've neglected often evangelism in that uh, equation. Uh, talk a little bit about that tension that you see. Is there a tension between Christianity as social ministry, social action, and Christianity as explicit truth-telling, gospel-inviting evangelism? How do these work together? Uh, I think there is no tension biblically. Uh, and uh, uh, somebody who's committed to Christ is committed to people's needs. And so we will certainly be involved in helping people and getting involved in their needs, fighting for justice and all of that as part of our involvement in as, as Christians in society. Uh, but, of course, we we say that the greatest need is for people to be reconciled to their creator. So this would be a passion that we will always have. Uh, so I, I don't think there is a tension in theory. The tension comes in practice. Mm. Um, I think it's complex in today's world because in today's world people uh, take involvement in society and in evangelism together as using evan- uh, social concern as a bait. And, and so this makes us want to be very uh, careful about how we combine these two. And in, in our cultures, when you do social work and you do you preach the gospel at the same time. What they say is that you're using evangelism as a bait. So what has happened is that some people have said that we mustn't proclaim the gospel. We do our social work. They know we are Christians. And they will ask, what is the reason why you are like this? And then they will share the gospel. 
In fact, very often in Sri Lanka we are hearing a statement that is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, though I'm not sure whether he really made this statement. Um, preach the gospel by all means, and if necessary, use words. But if you look at the life of St. Francis, he was using words all the time, you know. Even to speaking to the Sultan of Egypt, that's the right. Muslim. That's yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so um, uh, the danger is that even as we become sensitive to the past, uh, you know, abuse of people's weakness and vulnerability, and using that to, be, to make people Christian, I think those are things that we decry. People who have become sensitive to this are now, um, are now backing away from proactive strategizing to reach the lost with the gospel. Mm-hmm. And that is why I wrote that. Yeah, thing. it was a very much needed word, I think, and still is today. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I want to mention one other aspect of your ministry, which really uh, circles the globe in terms of its influence, and that is your writing. Uh, you're a, a great preacher of the gospel, a proclaimer. You've incarnated the gospel in your ministry in Sri Lanka, but you're also a wonderful writer. And I'm just going to mention a few of your titles and ask you to comment on your most recent book. Uh, one of your great books is called The Supremacy of Christ, and it deals with some of the things we've been talking about. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ, he is the supreme Lord. What does that actually mean in real-life terms? Another book along those lines that I would recommend to everyone who's concerned about how Christians interact with persons from other religions. It's called Sharing the Truth in Love, How to Relate to People of Other Faiths. It's a marvelous book. And then uh, you also have a commentary on Acts. Uh, If we had more time, we'd talk about you as a biblical scholar, because that's a great commentary on the book of Acts. Was it the NIV application application, uh, series from uh, Zondervan? Zondervan. But the book I want to ask you to comment on, because we have just a few minutes, is Call to Joy and Pain. It was published by Crossway in 2008. What's that book about, and why did you write it? Well, the thing that drove me to write this book, there are two reasons. Firstly, I found many Christians who are not prepared for pain and suffering. And when they face it, they become very disillusioned, think that God has abandoned them. And it was uh, partly written with that pastoral concern, because I have met so many Christians who are so unhappy uh, because of that. And um, uh, what I found in my study of the New Testament is that the joy and pain very often come together and that they can coexist. And this was partly an attempt to to convince Christians that they don't have to lose their joy when they suffer. That was one reason. The other is that uh, because of our common, uh, of today's focus on comfort and ease and, uh, and efficiency and all of that, Uh, I had a great fear that many Christians are moving away from God's will for them uh, and uh, losing part of their effectiveness and depth as Christians because they are avoiding suffering. Uh, Avoiding suffering by avoiding their commitments. When God asks you to be committed to a people, to a body, to a church, suffering is inevitable because people, you know, they have a way of hurting us. And I saw that Christians were avoiding this commitment and getting into shallow relationships, moving away from difficult callings because they want to avoid suffering. And I was hoping that this book will enable people to embrace 
the suffering that is inevitable because of the commitments we have. And by that, to have a deep ministry, an effective ministry, and also to be joyful in the midst of it. Yeah. You know, there's a, a tremendous verse that's always meant a lot to me, Philippians 3.10, where the Apostle Paul says that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And I used to wonder, didn't he get that reversed? I mean, you know, we should have the suffering and then the resurrection. But I think he's trying to say maybe the highest reaches of the Christian life through the power of the resurrection, is to know Christ in the koinonia, the fellowship of his sufferings. And I think that's what you're trying to say to us uh, right, in this yeah. great book. Well, my guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Ajit Fernando. It's such a joy to have you with us here at Beeson Divinity School. May the Lord bless you and prosper your ministry in every way, wherever you go. Thank you, Timothy. Nice to talk to you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.